All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We're so grateful to have you here tonight. Um, my name is Charlotte Ward. I'm CCL State and Local Media Coordinator, and I wanted to welcome you to an extra special Citizens Climate University this evening. Citizens Climate University is a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate that provides CCL supporters with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics relating to climate change and effective climate advocacy. So tonight I'm thrilled to be joined by a fabulous panel of experts to discuss our topic, which is crafting impactful conservative op-eds and LTEs. All right, so increasingly we know it's crucial that our leaders and our fellow Americans from all across the political spectrum are well informed and ready to act on climate. Conservatives have a strong voice to challenge candidates to step up on this issue and show a wider audience that conservatives care about climate and want to be part of the conversation. So tonight we have three incredible panelists who will be helping us all to ensure that conservative voices are out there being amplified on this important topic. So first of all, I would love to introduce Nathan Crabb. He is the editor of The Invading Sea, a, a website a website publishing news, commentary, and educational content about climate change that it also shares with newspapers across Florida. The website is managed by Florida Atlantic University. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Um, so Nathan has previously worked for the Gainesville Sun newspaper from 2005 to 2022. He served for most of that time as the paper's opinion and engagement editor. He also covered the University of Florida and environmental beats as a reporter. And before that, he investigated wrongful convictions for the Innocent Institute of Point Park University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he covered the environmental and county beats as a reporter for the Napa Valley Register in Napa, California. So he just brings us so much knowledge and experience. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, next, we have uh, Mariana Macuso. She is currently serving as senior advisor to Primary Pivot, an organization dedicated to safeguarding our democracy by mobilizing voters in the 2024 Republican primaries. Additionally, she served as a spokesperson for Republican, a dynamic group of conservatives dedicated to addressing climate change. We love them at CCL. They're our good friends. Last year, Mariana had an incredible 25 unique op-eds published, which is just amazing. I can tell you that is that is some feat. She's an opinion contributor at The Hill and Times Radio UK, offering insight on air analysis across various national news outlets. With over a decade of experience in political communications, she has held various campaign communication roles, including serving as digital director for high-profile national and state-level campaigns. Mariana earned her BS in political science from Sunny Brockport and a master's degree from Long Island University. Her master's degree includes a double concentration in American politics with a specialization in elections and voting behavior and international relations with a focus on Middle Eastern politics and the inception of the Iraq war. So she is just an incredible person to have here tonight. She brings us so much knowledge and on the job experience of pitching things and getting them printed. Thank and you for having me. Oh, absolutely. We love having you here. 
Carly Matthews is our third panelist this evening. She is the Vice President of Communications at the American Conservation Coalition. In this role, she oversees the organization's communication team and works with ACC's senior leadership team to set high level messaging. As a spokesperson for the organization, Carly has appeared on BBC World News and Fox and Friends. Since assuming her role in 2020, Carly has facilitated the publication of more than 500 ACC affiliated op-eds, including pieces in The Hill, The Washington Examiner and Real Clear. She was named one of Maverick Pack's Future 40 in 2023. Carly, a Pennsylvania native now living in Washington, D.C., graduated from Temple University with a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Political Science. She's currently pursuing her master's degree in strategic communication, advocacy and social impact at American University. When she's not at work, Carly can be found watching a golf tournament, walking her beloved corgi or squeezing in a quick run at the gym. And I will also say Carly has been such a help to our volunteers at CCL. I know that she has guided them and helped them through um, the process of writing many op-eds with a conservative angle. So um, we're just so grateful to have her here tonight and sharing her expertise with you. Well, um, let's dive straight in. I know that um, this is a question that many people who have called in tonight are, are really keen to know. Um, what messages have you found to be effective with conservatives in your work? Yeah, I can hop in here first. Um, I think what has been really effective for ACC and our message is that we talk about kind of the conservation ethos and environmental stewardship ethos that conservatives and conservative values kind of lend themselves to. I think also when we're talking about action on climate change, talking about co-benefits, um, because conservatives do really care about our environment and keeping it healthy, but talking about how clean energy is also a really economically smart solution as well really resonates with conservatives. They want to know that while we're protecting the environment, we're also bolstering our economy. Um, so those are kind of the two main things that we really try to focus on in all of our communications. Great. Mariana, I'd love to hear your response on this as well. Yeah, you know, we really look for topics that can speak to the conservative group and when it comes to climate change and trying to bring more Republicans in with us. As we started to see in recent polling, it's showing that Republicans are starting to close the gap and actually believe that this is a problem. And so thinking about different topics that might speak to them, I recently just had a post up uh, op-ed release today um, in Florida on the invading seas about the Prove It Act. And that was a bipartisan piece of legislation where Republicans are really interested in seeing that move ahead and hopefully we can get it done and it won't be held up due to the election cycle. Fabulous. Well, I think that's a great um, way to pivot to uh, Nathan. Did you commission that op-ed? <laughs> yeah, we, we ran that, that op-ed today and uh, and yeah, it's it's already been picked up by, uh, by, by two newspapers, um, the uh, Tampa Bay Times and the Orlando Sentinel, which I just think speaks to the idea that there are there are there's an audience out there for these these pieces um, that are that have more of a conservative angle on climate issues. How important is it to you to be able to print that kind of mix of voices? You know, it's huge. And I think that, you know, I think that there's there's a hunger out there for for more variety of voices in the climate conversation. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate folks like uh, Mariana and, and Carly um, the, the, when they talk about all the op-eds they've gotten printed. I've I've uh, they've they sent plenty my way and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Um, so I think that, um, you know, quite frankly, 
Um, newspaper opinion pages are often dominated by liberal voices. So I think that opinion editors are really hungry to have some, some alternate voices there. And, and so when, when uh, pieces get written with a conservative perspective, they're much more likely to get picked up. So how, um, what are opinion pages editors looking for when they do get pictures from contributors? You, you are in that position. So I think there's a lot of people here who would love to know um, what, what catches your eye? What kind of things are you looking for when you're, when you're going through those emails or pictures? You know, I mean, variety is, is, is one thing I would say, um, you know, I think that, um, quite frankly, when I first, when I was an opinion editor at the Gainesville Sun and the, the, um, uh, CCL folks started showing up at my, my door that they would, um, you know, they'd often, um, have pieces that were, were very focused on the, um, uh, carbon fee uh, and dividend. And, and they were kind of, uh, so layers are focused on that, that you can only print one every once in a while that you couldn't just print those all the time. So I've noticed in more recent years that the CCL folks kind of tend to, to, to come at these issues from different angles. And, and, and there might be something about the carbon fee and dividend later in the piece, but, you know, it kind of takes an issue of the day and kind of leads to that point. I think that's a much more effective way of doing things is kind of finding out what what's kind of the hot issue, what's, what are some of the big issues that are being debated, or what's some, some of the big things that are happening in our world in terms of the effects of climate change, and then kind of use that as a lead-in to, to, to advocate for, uh, for, for such climate solutions. So thinking a bit like a news journalist, really thinking about like what the story of the moment is and then how to pivot off that story and come up with an interesting op-ed. Yeah, Marianna's great at doing that. So she could probably tell you some tips on, on, on what she does and in, in picking topics. Yeah, I'd love to hear them. Oh, gosh. Well, um, thanks for putting me on the spot, Nathan. So I will say <laughs> that I actually do solicit opinion editors feedback. I've definitely emailed and called Nathan a few times and asked him, you know, hey, what are you looking for? Where are the gaps in the coverage and how can I be of assistance? And that's always led to really, I would say, really great pieces because now I know what he's looking for. And then I can go, for example, the prove it piece that I sent was a result of an email that I sent to him a couple of weeks back asking, what are you seeing right now in Florida and where are we missing opportunities? And then also, too, I just I constantly read various climate articles. And so I'm always thinking about how is this going to impact specifically with Florida? And so for people who are in I know not everybody is based in Florida here in this conversation, but people that are looking to have, you know, letters to the editors or op-ed pieces, looking just in your state and thinking about what are some things that are happening. You know, for example, in California, there's an issue where they have uh, droughts in the summer, but during the winter, they could actually save the snowpack, but environmentalists won't allow them to do that. So then at the end, then they're mad in the summer when everybody has a drought and then there's raging wildfires. So thinking about what's really pertinent to your state and thinking about how you can convey that message to fellow conservatives. That's yeah, really both, both both Mariana and Carly have been real great at us and, you know, sending pieces my way that, you know, like Florida's had the, the you know, I guess the United States had a record heat last summer, but it was particularly bad down here in Florida. So, you know, when they're a summer of record heat or where they're, you know, hurricane season in Florida and you have a piece that kind of pivots from that to talking about solutions to to, to climate change, I think that's an effective way to, to, to capitalize on the news of the day to get people's attention. Right. Carly, you must have some opinions on this. It's so impressive how many op-eds you've placed over the years. So how, how do you go about thinking about how you advise people and help with their op-eds? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, both Nathan and Mariana made really good points here. I think the timeliness piece is really important. Um, thinking about the news of the day, that's definitely something that we think about whether we're pitching a national piece or something more local. I would also say just really kind of honing in on your unique perspective and like what makes you an author worth reading. Um, and what I tell our members all the time, because our target age range is 18 to 35. So some of them come to me and say like, I don't have a PhD in climate science. So like, what's my expertise? And your expertise can be being from Florida and experiencing things firsthand. It doesn't have to be, you know, an advanced degree or years of experience. It can be anecdotal. It can be your passion. Um, and that's what I really try to kind of emphasize with our members. And when a member is really, really passionate about what they're writing about, that's the easiest pitch because an editor can really feel that. I would agree with that. And Carly, just to jump off that point, and I was reading the International New York Times. It was back in May, and I came across an article about how Indonesia is moving the capital to Borneo. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah they had to move the capital because it's actually sinking. And I know that in Miami, by 2050, it's looking to be underwater. And obviously, that's the last thing I want for the Sunshine State to be underwater. And I don't want to have to have waterfront property in Oklahoma. So I wrote a piece with kind of talking about how this government was tackling the fact that its capital is sinking. And that, so to Carly's point, finding something that you're super passionate about and being able to kind of thread the needle is really helpful. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's a really good topic. You know, the, the thing about timeliness, too, is there's, there's a little bit of a balancing act there. You want to be timely, but not too timely in the sense of you don't want to send a piece that the, the time peg is something that's happening that week that might change for the next week, because sometimes it takes a while for an opinion editor to get to your piece. You know, for example, when the Republican um, debate came down to Miami, everyone wrote a piece about um, about wanting the Republican candidates to to speak to um, uh, climate change during the debate, which was great. And I thought I was really excited to print up a couple of those but became so so i got so many of them that i wasn't able to print um all of them so you got to kind of try to hit something right at that sweet spot that it's timely but not you know it's not just right around the corner and the opinion editor doesn't get to it so how important is storytelling so if people kind of the narrative is very like personal to them does that make a big difference yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, getting back to what kind of Carly said about, you know, people sharing their experiences, I think that, I think anecdotal leads to, to, to pieces are, are, are really good in terms of kind of using personal experiences to illustrate things, um, you know, and it could, it doesn't necessarily have to be your personal experience, for example, you know, pieces about extreme heat. Um, you know, I've seen them let off with, you know, stories about the deaths of, of, of farm workers who, who died, um, you know, in extreme heat. So stuff like that, that can kind of catch you right away, because I think that the thing that, that I, I, I think the biggest fault sometimes of some climate related pieces, is they get too bogged down in a resuscitation of facts and a lot of numbers and, 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 and this sort of thing. So you kind of lose the human uh, element of it. I mean, the question everyone should be asking themselves on any piece is how does this affect people's lives? And if you can illustrate that by telling a personal story, whether about yourself or someone else at the beginning, I think that's very effective. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I don't get the opportunity super often to um, to write an op-ed myself, but I did get the opportunity this week um, because our organization released some polling specifically on rural conservatives. Um, and I grew up in a town without a stoplight, um, so I was really able to kind of bring back my um, my upbringing and my experiences to talk about 
how my community growing up viewed climate, how they viewed environmentalism, and how that kind of informed my work today. So that was a really fun piece to write, um, and it was something that only I could write because it was from my lived experience, and I think that'll make it kind of an, an easier pitch when it when it comes to that time. So I think a lot of us would love to know if we if we're printed somewhere, how do we how do we utilize that relationship? Do we follow up quickly or is that a bit irritating or should we <laughs> wait a while? Should we pitch while we say thank you? Like what would be what what would be your advice, Nathan? And I'd love to know from um, Carly and Mariana, like what has been successful so uh, when I was at the Gainesville Sun, we had a once a month rule. So if you got a, a, an opinion piece, whether it's a letter to the editor or, or, a, or a column printed once um, that month, you were you were going to get printed again. So it was it was it was you shouldn't go back to the well so so quickly. And you know, so I think once a month is probably um, a, a pretty good rule to live by, even if we if you don't have that kind of rule at, at your local publication. Um, you know, it it. I think people I, I had I relied quite frankly on letter writers that wrote every month of the of the year when I was at the Gainesville Sun they really helped me fill the letter pages so I was thankful they did that um, but if you're going to keep coming back you know try to spice it up and make it a little different don't come with the same kind of kind of letter or, or, or submission every month and, and I think what Mariana said is 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 a good advice in terms of if you have a columns being printed and you are kind of developing a rapport with the opinion editor kind of ask them what they're looking for but but don't be surprised if you don't hear back from them either i think there's some opinion editors like a lot of people that are that are overworked and don't get back with everyone that writes them a piece um but um but yeah i i would say once a month is a pretty good rule i would say to that point i'm probably the the person that's probably a bit more um aggressive in my pitching <laughs> <laughs> i think nathan's been on the receiving end of a few of those emails like just want to make sure you're interested in this nathan um and so one of the things to his point of doing once a month in certain publications that's true and so the way that i try to make sure that i'm able to stay on top of that is i'll do an editorial calendar and i'll just look to see what's coming down the pike to avoid the barrage of like climate debate in Miami, every GOP person needs to speak about this and make sure that I get ahead of everybody. Maybe that's why I was so prolific last year. Um, but also too, I think that when you send a pitch and you don't hear back, so I have a five day rule. If I don't hear back from a pitch, I can assure you, I will email you again. And my email is always the same as the closing the loop email. And it's just saying, I'm circling back I wanted to know if you have any interest in this. If you don't, that's fine. Let me know. I'm moving it along. That being said, the first thing in every email I send is I offer exclusivity. There's been a couple of pieces where Nathan's been like, is this exclusive? Can we publish this too? And that's what happened in the Prove It piece is that I wound up writing another iteration solely for Florida because the first piece ran in the hill and he said, you know, I would love to publish that. And I said, well, I can't give it to you, but let me give you something else. And I rewrote another piece directly aimed at Florida. So I would say that in the first one, offer exclusivity because papers love that. They love knowing that they can own a piece and it was written solely for them. And then following up and staying on top of them. And then after they've printed your work and they send you the link, you can write back and say, hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it and kind of just keep it moving. But building the rapport is always very, very important to keeping your work above the fold, so to speak. Yeah, I definitely agree with everyone's points there. I think something else too is kind of building that relationship so that an editor comes to you as an expert when news hits. Um, so we have a few relationships like that where I know if there's you know a big wildfire or if there's a hurricane, we're going to be getting kind of 
communication from editors asking if we have anything to say on that or if we have a spokesperson who wants to write. Um, so it can go both ways too if you kind of build that relationship in a positive way. And what Mariana said about about kind of having a calendar and planning it out is really a really good idea. Um, that's very smart. Um, you know, and, and think about it if you're looking to get something published, when when those kind of quiet periods are that if you know if you haven't had success, you know, sending something before the before holidays is always a sure sure way. For, you know, uh, uh, newspaper editors and opinion editors are like anybody else; they're trying to get off some time for the holidays. They're trying to work far ahead. So if you send something like a week before a holiday, they're trying to get all those pages done and uh, in, in, in advance you might have a better chance of getting something published. Thank you. Um, Carly and Nathan, you often edit opinion content. So I think we'd love to know, like, how can we make our writing sharper and more impactful? Any tips you can share? Yeah, sure. Uh, Carly, do you want to go first? Yeah, I can go first. Um, I work with a lot of college students on pieces, so it's interesting kind of helping them tr transition from academic writing to more persuasive op-ed writing. Um, something I always try to emphasize with them is that you sound smarter if you're more concise. Um, and <laughs> The, the big fancy words don't always serve you in the way that you think that they're serving you. Um, so being really clear, really concise, saying what you mean and saying it confidently is really, really important. Um, also, I always encourage backing up claims with sources. Different publications have different standards, but I think the more sources, the better. And if a publication wants to cut down on some links, that's fine. But providing um, kind of backup for all your claims is really important. And then my last tip, which is might be a little difficult if you're in an office setting, but I always read a piece out loud to myself um, and kind of make sure it sounds like how someone would speak. Um, because sometimes when you're editing and you're getting through all these different paragraphs, all these different points, um, you can kind of lose the flow of it. You can get kind of too many cooks in the kitchen in the editing process. So reading it out loud to yourself all at once and making sure it flows in the way you want to um, really kind of helps iron out any of the kinks. Yeah, those are all great tips. I mean, shorter is better. I mean, I, I tell people 600 words or, or fewer, um, and even fewer than that, even fewer than 500 sometimes is, you know, the, the pages of opinion, uh, the opinion pages in newspapers are shrinking. So the pieces that get printed on them are shrinking. So even though you can, they get printed online as well, or might, you might be directed people online, think about the attention span people have these days. Once they get beyond 600 words and certainly beyond 750, which is kind of my upper limit, you know, they start, they're not going to read your piece all the way through. So keep it shorter, keep it concise, keep the sentences and the paragraphs short too. I mean, uh, I think shorter is better for sure. Um, you know, I, I asked a opinion, one of the opinion editors of the Tampa Bay Times for advice once on, on what he, he tells folks. And he, um, he said, assume your audience is smart, but lacks knowledge about the topic. And his quote was, a good column makes a reader feel smarter, not stupid. And I thought that was great advice because, you know, these are complicated topics, but you don't want to talk down to people. You don't want to lecture or scold people either. I don't think that's very effective. Um, you know, we're talking about conservative audiences too. I, I've, I've, one impression I've gotten, I'd be certainly interested in Marianne and Carly's opinion on this, is the doom and gloom stuff that's just real heavy and doom and gloom, and that's all it is, and there's no solutions or anything like that. I don't, I don't think it's a very effective way of, of reaching uh, conservative audiences or, or, frankly, other other politically aligned audiences as well. Um, so that's that's another tip that I give. Jargon and acronyms and technical terms, just do away with those. If you have a bunch of acronyms in your piece, it's, you know, people's eyes glaze over when they see a bunch of numbers or a bunch of letters, you know, uh, just avoid that kind of stuff. Um, 
that's pretty much don't try to cover everything too. try to focus pick pick one issue and kind of stick to it don't try to cover everything about climate change because you're not going to get through that in, in 600 words that was great do you um mariana do you want to add to any of that i would just say not necessarily when it comes to the editing phase i think carly's advice is fantastic read it out loud to yourself and then also sometimes when i'm struggling with a piece i'll step away from it and come back to it the next day because i'm like i don't I don't know what we're doing here and I need to just leave it alone. Also, don't be afraid to do a bunch of reading and research on the front end. Oftentimes people sit down to write an op-ed and they're like, I'm going to write this really great op-ed. And then they sit down and they're like, well, I don't know what I want to say. So, and I recently had to do that with a piece regarding steel imports into America. And I knew that I wanted to angle it in such a way to say that I wanted American steel to have its moment in the industry and be able to be more advantageous for American consumers and then penalize industries and countries that were actually producing steel in a very dirty way. But I didn't really know how I was going to get there. So I sat down with a whole bunch of like white papers and briefings and data and trying to figure out what this looked like and what this would do for the economy and how would this be really great. And that took a couple of days to write that. And it hasn't come out yet, but um, I'm sure it'll be somewhere at some point very soon. And so I think that that's is really important. Don't be afraid to be a novice when you have an idea and you want to dig a little bit deeper. And then lastly, when you do share your pitches, the one thing that I would really encourage is to put it in your email below your signature line. So nobody has to worry about the download not working. You forgot to attach the download because Lord knows I've done that numerous times. I'm like, oh, wait, here's the attachment. Never mind. And by that point, nobody's interested, especially if you're doing a cold pitch. So I was just included at the very bottom of your signature, underneath your signature line in your email. That's very good advice. And um, we hear at CCL a lot from volunteers that opinion content has been shrinking on their papers, that there's that it, it isn't printed every day anymore or it's um, there's less of it. So that is that is challenging. Um, I'd love to hear all of your tips on how we can make our work stand out in these times when there's there's a lot of competition, but less space for this content. Yeah, I mean, I I used to work for the Gainesville Sun, which is owned by Gannett, um, the people that, that do USA Today and own you know the majority of newspapers in this country at this point. And um, you know, part of the reason I left is because they were cutting back on the opinion content. Um, they um, stopped running syndicated opinion content, and so when they um, did that, that a lot of papers cut back from having opinion content every day to having it um, you know once or twice a week in some cases. Um, but the good news behind that is. They're not paying for wire service content anymore for opinion. So that means they need all local stuff. So it actually opens up an audience more, uh, you know, a greater need for local pieces. And I think that would probably be my biggest tip for all of this is local, local, local. Uh, you know, the, the, a, a company like Gannett, they, they, they emphasize that with opinion. They want stuff to be local. So if you can, can, uh, use an angle that refers to something that's happening locally, some sort of, you know, like I said, weather or, or, or other things that you can, uh, legislation that's happening in that state. Um, you know, I think that that is the best way to get, um, to break through the noise and get your piece published. Wonderful. Carly, Mariana, any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I would just say um, the kind of the good part about social media and kind of more technology all over all around us is that so many people have started up kind of their own media startups. And I think that um, Nathan at the Invading Sea is a really great example of like Florida specific content on climate on the environment. So finding maybe like more 
um, kind of niche or focused publications that are really kind of on the issues that you're writing about can be really effective too. Um, and then some of them like Nathan's syndicate, and then you have more and more eyes on, on those pieces, but getting creative with your pitches and finding like that exact right outlet is honestly one of um, my favorite parts of my job because it's kind of strategic. You get to be creative um, and find, you know, give all your little op-eds their unique homes. Um, so that's kind of the, the fun part about pitching. Mariana, did you have anything to add or are we, are we fully covered? I think, I think we're pretty covered. I think to Carly's point of finding unique places and homes, I, I would say that don't be afraid to reach out to somebody randomly. I mean, I just picked up the phone and called the political editor of the Richmond Times Dispatch yesterday because I wanted to talk to him about a story I had. And, you know, not being afraid to pick up the phone or to reach out with an email, I think is very important. And that at the end of the day, let's be honest, it's a numbers game, Right. And you, the more you pitch people, the higher likelihood that something's going to get picked up. I will say the caveat to that is if you offer something exclusively, you have to be prepared to give that and cannot, do not double pitch. So for example, don't pitch to one outlet, turn around with the exact same piece to another outlet and give it to them and offer them because what you will have happen is wires can get crossed and you can have two outlets at the same time except the exact same piece and you've offered exclusivity to both and now you're like uh i can't give this to you that's, that's a good point that, that you bring up mariana i mean i think that you the the thing that would be aware of is is most a lot of opinion pages will have something online where it kind of gives the rules that they have of whether they have exclusivity or not so you should be aware you should know who you're pitching to try to find the person that's the opinion editor at that place you know just don't send something to just kind of a generic email because it's probably going to get lost in the shuffle so if you can find who they find who the opinion editors find out what the rules are follow those rules if the exclusivity is is one of them make sure to follow that one because papers are very strict about that that have those kind of rules i mean we're lucky at the evading seat because we share with 27 papers across florida and all those papers have kind of agreed to share this kind of content so in florida it's a little bit of a, a different situation than, than some places but even some of those papers that if you pitch to them directly rather than coming to us then it has to be printed there first before it can be printed um you know by by the invading sea so so yeah know know who you're dealing with and 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 follow their rules word counts too are usually at those at those uh at those sites and uh, Nathan, um, Mariana was saying that she follows up after five days. How much can we pester you? <laughs> can we do one email, one phone call? Like what, what is an acceptable um, amount of pestering to see if you're going to take our pitch? He's I mean, going to say five days. That's what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm old fashioned. I mean, I'll get back to somebody right away, right? I mean, I'll get back Great. to somebody within 24 hours. I think that that's, that's just... Um, good manners is to get back to people that send you an email within 24 hours, but that email might not say a lot. It might be just like, thank you for sending this. Um, so what Marianne, I think, is talking about is getting back to see, are you going to do anything with this or not? And I think that that's fine. I mean, again, you know, it's different people have different um, uh, rules in terms of, of when they respond. I try to keep people a, a, abreast of when their, their piece is going to be running and if it gets delayed to let them know. But that's the thing about all this stuff is that there's always something breaking in the news business. So a piece that I might have had Mariana's piece set to run tomorrow, and then there's a new piece of uh, legislation that, 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 that's going to get voted on tomorrow in the Florida uh, legislature. So I get, I get this other piece in right away. So that kind of stuff happens. And, and, um, and it's, but I, I'm I'm okay with getting pestered. I think five days is, is it sounds like a pretty good rule to me. 
Great, fantastic. All right, well, I know that there's some questions in the chat and probably some others that people would like to ask. So um, I'm gonna invite Michael Jeffries, my colleague, to to cover some of these questions and we will we'll try and get these answers for you. Yeah, so as people are coming in, um, please send your questions then either to the Q&A or the chat, we will be monitoring them. Um, we might not have the time to get to every question, so you know, appreciate your understanding for that. But um, first, I just want to start out and say thank you so much, guys, for coming and speaking to us all. I'll be completely honest. I 90% put this panel together because I just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on these <laughs> answers. And um, I'm glad other people um, came and listened to them. So did not disappoint. But kind of our first question that we get, and I'd, I'd be very interested to kind of hear your guys' thoughts on this. So... I have a question here about, you know, this idea of an all of the above approach, which, you know, can be kind of taken as two ways among certain Republicans. It can kind of be taken as we need to make it way easier to build out fossil fuels or we need to make it way easier to build out all energy sources, including renewables. And I, I've seen it run both ways. So, you know, would you is this a, a phrase that you particularly, Carly, Marianne, I'm very interested in your guys' thoughts on this. Is this a phrase like all of the above energy approach? Is that a phrase that you would run with? Or is it a phrase that you think maybe we need to maybe try to counter in some ways? Um, it's definitely a phrase that ACC uses. Um, we believe that we should use all the, all the tools in our tool belt, all the forms of energy that we have access to, to ensure affordable, reliable, and increasingly clean energy. I think something else that we focus on kind of in addition to that is this idea of American energy dominance and the idea that our energy should be produced here in the United States because we do it safer, we do it cleaner. Um, and if we're talking about climate change from a global perspective, we want to reduce global emissions and producing energy here in the United States does that. And do you have thoughts on that? I would agree with Carly's sentiment. Look, we, we should be doing this here in America. We have a lot of opportunity and let's do all of the above. Let's not relegate ours to one area that might not, that's going to continue to limit America energy independence. Yeah. yeah we, we, and I did a webinar with um, somebody that presented some polling that, um, uh, that found issues like reducing reliance on foreign oil, ensuring the reliance on electric grid and improving nation's infrastructure were issues that resonated uh, with Republicans. But the thing, the, the message that I kind of thought was most interesting is that American made energy, that phrase was something that really resonated in polling with with conservatives. So, uh, you know, uh, American made energy fits coming from the sun and, and all that, that good stuff sounds sounds good to me too. So I think that's something that could appeal to all audiences. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's a great point. Um... I know I'm a, I'm a regional conservative outreach coordinator. I kind of mentioned that because sometimes I think that sometimes people who are maybe um, more on the left side of the aisle can hear all of the above and they can hear, they, they almost hear it as, oh, code for fossil fuels. But a lot of times it's, it's, it is true all of the above. I want, I want more natural gas. I want more American natural gas um, and um, coal if it's even somewhat viable. But a lot of times it also means I want to see a lot more um, renewables as well. And I think that that's something that um, can get missed. Um, so when it comes to writing op-eds, would you be able to distinguish maybe kind of what the, the voice tone of a conservative op-ed writer versus a liberal op-ed writer might sound like if you're trying to write a conservative friendly op-ed? I think the economic stuff is, you know, I think that was 
brought brought up by one of the questioners too is I think that you know it, uh, what was it that even Margie Taylor Green was excited by the solar plant that was in her district I mean I think that that jobs bringing jobs is something that we can all agree on um, so I think that um, if uh, focusing on a, a tone that or an angle that focuses on economic issues is something that might appeal to conservatives audiences but I think that other other people other political persuasions would be persuaded by that as well Something I found really effective, and I, I don't think it's unique to conservatives, but I do think it really resonates with them, is this idea of optimism um, and not writing a piece from the perspective of we're all dying in 12 years or you shouldn't have children because of climate change or you know whatever it may be, but having kind of an optimistic pro-people approach mm -hmm. um, I think is really important if you're trying to inspire people to action. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen stuff that says that, you know, the terms like climate crisis and, and climate emergency do not conservatives get turned off by that. Mariana and Carly, would you would you say that that's the case? Yeah, we've been switching to using climate change and just calling it what it is. Um, and, you know, that's really important. And I think that there's also opportunity to kind of bring both people like both sides of the aisle together in things. I you know that someone was talking, asking about, you know, the, this panic of climate and Carly's like, if in 12 years, like we're all going to be dead or you shouldn't have children and there's all these things. And I think it's also important to, to address that head on. I did a piece on climate anxiety and I think that that's very important that we address that. And I think when you're addressing those issues, you're coming straight down the middle and it's not necessarily a conservative or a liberal tone, but it's saying, Hey, we are human and we are all experiencing this together in the same moment. How can we best move forward and what are our options, right? So we don't ever end it on the doomsday kind of scenario. Mm. That's a great point. Have you guys found, so Phil Hurley asked this question, so some of us at CCL put together a paper that points to migration as an issue that's increasingly becoming a problem due to climate change and will only become worse. Um, have you guys found some success in finding a way to talk about this? Because I know I, sometimes when I hear kind of conversations around this is there's there's a little bit of touchiness about wanting to um, wanting to address this for, for good reasons, right? You don't want to sound like you're trying to stoke, you know, ethnic fears about um, climate migrants or something like that. Um, but is there but there's also a real humanitarian concern there um, and, and social concerns and um, have you guys found a maybe a good way to talk about that issue at all? Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote about climate refugees last year. I I promised you there's probably topics I didn't write on on climate change. <laughs> At this point, I'm like listening to myself. I'm like, well, yeah, I've written about this. And, but I did write about the climate refugees situation. We are seeing a lot of people being displaced as a, as a result of climate. And I think that what is really important is that we talk about the fact that they are being displaced as a result of climate. And it's not necessarily about the immigration or the border issue. It's about the fact that these people have to leave their homes because of flooding, because there were farmers and they can't grow their crops anymore. I mean, this is really, it's really sad on, again, a humanitarian level. And I don't care if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or you're a Green Party, Reform Party, whatever. At the end of the day, we can all agree that the fact of someone's being forced from their home because they can't can't live there and it's not sustainable for their family it is extremely tragic yeah mariana's piece i thought did a good job of that in, in terms of what you're saying is not making it you know it was it was just about this as being a, a, a 
crisis that has to be, you know, within, on a worldwide basis, we have to address um, and not stoking anyone's fears or anything like that. But also keep in mind that climate migration doesn't just mean people from other countries coming, coming into, to, you know, migrating from one country to the other. It also means people from, you know, let's like take the state of Florida, Florida, for example, from the coast moving inland. I mean, climate migration can mean a lot of things. Um, there was just a paper that got published by FSU researchers saying that the coasts of Florida are going to start aging because of uh, the young people are going to be able to move a lot easier uh, away from rising sea levels and the older folks are not as uh, not going to. So there are a lot of different angles to to come at that migration, climate migration issue. But I think it's one of the biggest issues that we're going to be facing in the years to come. So it definitely should be something that we write about. Yeah. It's also important to talk about not just the climate migration, but the events surrounding it. I did a piece on water scarcity, and I think that that's also really important is addressing like what is causing these people to have to leave. It's not just the fact that the climate is getting warmer and we're having hotter summers and there's droughts and people can't farm, but talking about the other issues that they're experiencing to allow it to become more of a real tangible thing for people to look and say, oh my gosh, I can't imagine that happening or that's horrible. And I think that that's very important. Yeah, those are all really good points. Um, recognizing that this will probably be one of the most concrete and is becoming one of the most concrete impacts of climate change, but also needing to explain, particularly for conservative audiences, <clears throat> that like um, why it it's happening. Yeah, the water scarcity, all these issues and how that's linked to climate change rather than just saying climate's making migration happen, right? Um, so we have a question here and it says, when conservatives claim climate activists are all alarmists and then claim the energy transition will lead to economic disaster, isn't that also alarmism? More of a, yeah. I mean, I guess <clears throat> kind of interacting with, um, how would you interact with the fact that, you know, there are large numbers of con the conservative audience out there who um, do say, basically, if you're talking about climate change, you are being an alarmist and to pursue any um, kind of any kind of solutions you're yeah you're spelling doom for our country essentially which yeah is somewhat alarmist to the questioners yeah one of my uh, favorite anecdotes is one morning before 10 a.m on twitter i was simultaneously called a climate alarmist and a climate denier so i think when you're doing this work <laughs> Um, from a conservative perspective, um, you're going to get fire from both sides because we're taking kind of this rational level-headed approach of yes, climate change is happening, but no, it doesn't mean we have to kind of like change the entire way we live. We can have a transition that's, um, that's smart, that keeps, um, our economy in mind, but also protects our environment. So, um, I think having a little bit of a tougher skin if you're a conservative in the climate space is necessary, but also recognizing that, um, you know, if you're putting your voice out there, you're going to get kind of criticism um, and making sure that you can kind of stand behind everything that you're saying is important. Yeah, I would agree with that. Always bring the receipts for what you're doing and make sure that you've got the data and the knowledge to back it up. I can tell you literally before this call, I got two really nasty emails. So people are not very happy with my stance on climate and that's unfortunate for them, but at least they're reading my stuff and they're writing me. So it's not that bad, right? Yeah. You know, there's always going to be trolls out there too, and you can't listen to the trolls. You know, being on Twitter just means you're going to be exposed to some of the most awful people on earth, and you just got to ignore them at a certain point. I mean, I think that you got to also think about what writing, what you're intending to do with your writing, right? Are you intending to just 
to mobilize people that already agree with you? Or are you looking to persuade people? And I think we've kind of lost this idea that there is even persuasive writing anymore because it seems like we're so polarized that you can't persuade people mm -hmm. anymore. But I think it's very important. And that's why I think it's important for people that are liberal to speak to conservative audiences is you want you want more people on your side we need if you want a legislation passed it ain't happening right now so you're going to have to get more people on your side to get that passed so you got to figure out ways to communicate with folks and speak to them uh on their own terms rather than talking down to them and insulting them yeah absolutely you're speaking ccl's language right there we're all about trying to bring people together so that way we can actually solve this problem um so we have a question here from Jennifer Durkin about <clears throat> regenerative agriculture. What are you guys' thoughts about regenerative agriculture? How is this a topic that you think is a, a good one maybe for writing about when you're talking to conservative audiences or just as a, as a conservative? Yeah, I wrote about regenerative agriculture, but I'm going to let Carly go before we talk about another piece that I've written. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I want to hear about that piece, first of all, um, but we are really involved in Farm Bill um, kind of dialogue and making sure that the conservation programs um, are preserved um, within the Farm Bill this year. Um, I think when we're talking about conservation and environmental stewardship, we really couldn't find better examples than our farmers and ranchers. Um, they're the ones kind of interacting with our environment every single day. They're on the front lines of climate change. They see those hotter temperatures, they see extreme weather, um, and it affects their livelihoods. So I think ensuring that we empower them through voluntary practices that they can um, they can employ to improve their yields, but also protect their land against the effects of climate um, is one of the most important things we can do on climate right now. I would agree with that wholeheartedly, Carly. And I, I am not a farmer in full disclosure. I'm sure that shocks everybody on this webinar. Um, but I did see the farm bill and I thought about this from Florida's impact. Again, you know, I write a lot of Florida centric pieces. I also write international climate pieces and national facing stuff. But a lot of my work is done here in Florida. And, you know, I just kind of brought out the data and I reviewed a fourth climate assessment to see what they were saying. And then I kind of drove home the point about the fact that generational farmers could actually end if we don't do something now. And so there's a real opportunity. And that piece was done um, for the Invading Sea. And Nathan was very gracious and published it. So thank you. Well, let's see. I'm only seeing one more question here, but it's two, there's two questions in the same comment. So um, Alexandra. As, says that you know she writes op-eds with ACC in Montana, and that she also did one with Republican, and but she's with CCL. So, are you seeing other folks from different organizations kind of working together to produce joint op-eds to help bridge the partisan divide? I'd like to see more of that. Um, I'd like to see more organizations that are kind of non-traditional organizations um, in terms of running out climate issues kind of get into the fray and, and maybe pair up with some some climate groups. I mean, if if you're with CCL and you have a local group that that um, maybe wouldn't traditionally be writing about climate, but maybe the agricultural groups are not as comfortable writing about it, that you could bring them into the fray, writing about regenerative agriculture, or writing about, you know, land conservation is another one here in Florida that, you know, they often say that the, uh, you know, the, the next crop that um, gets, gets uh, if a farm gets developed, it's going to be condos or the next crop on it. And and so it's in all our benefits to prevent that from happening. So there's there's some some partnerships that can be made, I think, from from 
groups, um, groups like that. So I, I would encourage people to reach out to other groups and do some things coming from a different angle on these issues. All right. Well, we've got one more question. I think this will probably, this will be probably our last question. Um, unless Charlotte wants to pull the cane on me. Um, no, go for it. All right. Great. So Larry Kane, um, great friend here in Indiana, um, says, asked if the danger of potential tipping point should be discussed as a reason for greater urgency for action, not simply to be alarmist or doom and gloom. So how do we talk about the real dangers of climate change without being doom and gloom? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a um, it's a delicate balance, but it's definitely doable. Um, you know, there's a case to be made that we need to take action now, um, but the alternative doesn't have to be or you'll die. <laughs> you know, there there can be kind of a, a balance of we should act now and here are concrete ways that we can do that without kind of like motivating folks by fear, but instead kind of inspiring them of like, this is what the future can look like if we do X, Y, and Z in the immediate future. So I think that there's, there's a way to inspire action without using fear as that motivator. Mm -hmm. I think the economic argument is, and this is another way that it could could work, is that the cost of inaction is is a higher cost later. I mean, we're just going to have to pay more for the problem the longer that we, we wait. So it, it, I guess that can be viewed as doom and gloom too, but I think that that might be something that resonates more with more conservative audience in the sense that you can say, this is just a simple matter of economics. We can invest in these these solutions now and save ourselves a whole bunch of money later. During the midterm elections, I did a piece regarding that if we didn't act on climate now, then all of those important meetings we have that we see all of our elected officials attend, that at some point they need to get fitted for snorkel gear because it will all be underwater. And that's not necessarily alarmist, but it is kind of funny to imagine Mitch McConnell wearing snorkel gear as he heads to a budget meeting, right? And so when you kind of bring in that level of humor, people are like, oh, but it does make you stop to think about that. And I think that that's extremely important to both Carly and Nathan's points. Mm. All right. Well, this has been so fascinating. I'm really sad we only have 10 minutes left. Um, it's been such a pleasure to hear from you all. I feel like we've all got so many great tips this evening. Um, Nathan, am I right in thinking that you are inviting people to pitch you? Yes, I mean, uh, uh, the local, local, local rule definitely goes for the innovating sea. We're very Florida focused, but if you have a pitch that has to do with Florida, um, you know, uh, legislation in Florida, uh, uh, particular um, effects of climate change in Florida, um, uh, you know, certainly people that live in Florida and have their own personal stories to tell and want to kind of get involved in the discussion. Uh, if you have a, a, a conservative persuasion um, uh, politically, um, as, as I said before, there I'm, I'm, I'm really looking for a greater variety of political viewpoints, and so are the newspapers of Florida. So if you uh, write something for conservative perspective on climate change and um, and uh, pitch it to me. I'm likely to publish it and, and some of these papers are likely to uh, pick it up. So I think my email was in the chat or there it is right there. So ncrab at fau.edu, please send uh, your pitches my way. Right, and Carly- well, you got a pitch from me sitting in your inbox right now. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. Wow, cool, thank you. And Carly, you welcome conservatives age, did you say 18 to 35, was it? Yeah, so that's our target age range, but um, Alex and um, our Western director have actually worked on op-eds kind of giving both the ACC and CCL perspectives. So um, depending on where you are, I can pair you up with either a college student or one of our staffers, and you can kind of give your, your joint perspectives, which could be kind of a fun side quest for both of us. 
Great. And uh, Mariana, what would you like people to email you about? If you need help like pitching or you're curious about different angles or you just want to use me as a sounding board for an idea, feel free to reach out. Um, I'm happy to help any way that I can. I think this is extremely important and I always love helping other writers find home for their work. Thank you so much. Well, you're also generous and we we really appreciate it. So I'm just going to wrap up by talking about a few of the resources we do have at CCL as well for you. We also want to help you as much as possible to be effective with your, your climate communication. All right. So on our CCL community, which is our, our member community, on our media resources page, you will find that we update all the time letter to the editor topics that gives you the opportunity to um, look for something newsworthy, that kind of timely hook that um, our panel was talking about earlier. We also have op-ed templates. These are, these are the ones you cannot do exclusive, but these are for the newspapers that are quite happy to um, print content that, that may be um, is printed somewhere else in the country and they, they, they're not quite so worried about exclusivity, but they always have the, that information on their websites. But we do these templates because we want to help you to do this work quickly. So there's that option for you. We have how-to trainings about media outreach. Um, we have forums for ideas, brainstorming and feedback. And if you're brand new to CCL and you'd just like to know more, then we do have an informational session every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Um, that's East Coast and 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, it just gives you an hour of learning about the policies we support and, and the work we do. Charlotte, you reminded me of one thing. If, if you're going to send something out for a bunch of places, don't just put a different city of residence on that. that you know, don't pretend you're... You're John from San Diego and John from, uh, you know, Missoula, Montana and all this sort of thing. Opinion editors actually talk to each other. We have different uh, text chains and this sort of thing. So you're going to get found out and get banned from all those papers. So don't try to do that. Yeah, no, we uh, we absolutely. What we do is we offer a template often with our um, executive director. And then we invite volunteers to do their own version of it where they live, <laughs> not like good idea. Not, not just like sending it. Like, all Some over people the place. don't get that message, unfortunately. <laughs> I have not pretended I live in Utah. <laughs> um, all right. So the other opportunity I just wanted to quickly tell people about this is something that I host every month. Um, we do a, a letter writing Zoom party, I call it. So I invite people to come on Zoom. We quickly learn how to write a letter to the, to the editor. It, it takes like five minutes. Then we have a discussion. Then we turn off our cameras and we mute for 20 minutes so that we can have focused time writing. So you get to do your homework in the call. You get to write your LTE. So um, anyone is welcome to come along to that. We have a lot of fun. We often read the letters afterwards and get inspired by each other. So um, the next one will be on March the 13th, I believe. And Salemi should be putting that link in the chat for you. If not, I will shortly. Um, but you are very welcome to join. And um, we, we really enjoy writing our LTEs together. All right, well, we're almost at the top of the hour. Um, 
I want to again thank our panelists for being here. We've learned so much. You're, you've been so kind to give your email addresses. I'm sure you're going to get lots of emails, maybe set aside some calendar time next week for that. Um, but we're really thrilled to have you and so grateful for all the work you do. You're, you're all helping us to get that climate communication out there. Um, so we are so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.